Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. But what about vaccination mandates? What about vaccination mandates that extend to the health profession? The Quebec Order of Nurses uh, have said they'll expel unvaccinated nurses. Healthcare professionals across Canada are also facing suspension without pay and ultimately being fired for being unvaccinated. Now, five million Canadians already have no family doctor. We know medical treatment far too often of the life-saving variety, like cancer and heart disease, is now unavailable because of the strain COVID has placed and continues to place on healthcare in this country of ours. So what about doctors and other healthcare professionals being mandated to be vaccinated? What about the failure to do so, possibly resulting in severe sanctions for unvaccinated doctors? Can we afford this with five million of us not having a family doctor? Dr. Catherine Smart joins us. She's the president of the Canadian Medical Association. I think this is the third successive week you've been on with me, Dr. Smart. You're going to be a guest host. Yeah, I think it might be. (laughs) Good to talk to you again. This This is such an incredibly important issue And let me just, uh, out of the gate, ask you for the CMA's position to its members, the Canadian Medical Association's position to its members about being vaccinated against COVID. Is there a policy? Is there a position? Are there both? Yes, absolutely. We called for mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers uh, back in August. So it's something that we strongly support. Uh, we think that our first priority as healthcare professionals, and you know, specifically in our case for physicians, is to keep in mind the safety of the people that we are in service to, and those are our patients. Um, and during a pandemic, the best way we can ensure safety to people who are vulnerable through medical illness is for us to be vaccinated ourselves. So we very strongly support vaccine mandates and think they're going to be an important part of keeping health care safe um, and also to, to bringing the pandemic to an end. What's your view of sanctions against healthcare workers who are not vaccinated, who've decided they are not going to be vaccinated? And that includes doctors. I don't know how many, but it does include doctors. Is it too much of a cost to the healthcare system if doctors and other healthcare workers are dismissed for not being vaccinated? I think, you know, it's it's an example of, of some very tough choices that have to be made. You know, fortunately, it's the minority of people who are not vaccinated or choosing not to be vaccinated. But as we've seen, it's still being impactful in some settings uh, when they're losing any healthcare providers. But I think what it's really showing is the issue that we have in this country, that we have such a shortage of human health resources, that there's no real flex in the system in a, in a situation like this, where, you know, even losing a few hundred people from a system might be hugely impactful in terms of service delivery. And I think that just shows us how our system has not had a plan in terms of human health resources and not been adequately resourced. And now we're in this challenging situation where we think what the ethical and morally right thing to do is to have vaccine mandates. Um, And that does mean some people being sanctioned or removed from their job, which unfortunately I think is what needs to happen at this point. But then, of course, there's that secondary impact of of what does that mean for service delivery? So there's no kind of easy solution here. Um, But I do think we need to be prioritizing safety of the workplace, um, health workers, and most importantly, our patients. And the best way to do that is through ensuring everyone who's delivering health care is vaccinated. Yeah, so you and I have talked about 
the lack of uh, readily available, significantly important health care at times. So a person who may have cancer, may have heart disease, uh, isn't immediately, isn't readily enough or quickly enough diagnosed and isn't treated quickly enough, and that can cost lives. So the, the it starts to become a question of what's primary, what's secondary. Um, if if you have healthcare workers, doctors removed from the system, that places additional patients at risk. So is that is that a chance that can be taken? I understand what you're saying, but it really is, in the most loose sense of the word, a conundrum. It is a conundrum, and I think it's difficult. I mean, I don't think anyone is thinking these are easy decisions or that either option, whichever road you go down, doesn't have negative consequences for somebody. I mean, that's inevitable, I think, in a situation like this. Um, But I think the reality is there's also huge system impacts when we start having outbreaks within hospitals amongst staff who aren't vaccinated, when we have people bringing COVID into things like long-term care facilities because of workers who have not been vaccinated and then that impacting the system. Um, So I I think whatever we do, there's consequences, uh, but I think we have to have front and center safety. Um, And I think we know that the best way to keep these spaces safe and functioning is for the people within them to be vaccinated. And that's why we are in favor of vaccine mandates. So what's the mandate then for doctors? Uh, I probably change it from province to province, but is there a reality in place now that says if you're not vaccinated by such and such a date, first thing that's going to happen is you'll be docked pay or you won't be working, you won't be paid. And if you're not vaccinated by the second date, you're fired. Are those are those mandates in place now? They are in some places. As you said, these are provincial decisions in terms of how it's being rolled out. So some provinces have put a mandate in places, is again, largely in hospital settings. There's also been some long-term care mandates um, where, yes, that's what they've, you know, Alberta is a good example of that, uh, Quebec. They're saying if you're not vaccinated, you can't work in the hospital. Um, if you're not vaccinated, you can't be in long-term care. So we are seeing those things happen, um, and that will mean that some people may lose their jobs or their income if they choose not to be vaccinated. But, you know, again, I think we have to put this against the background of these vaccines are safe and effective. So unless you have an actual medical exemption, there isn't really a lot of reason to be not vaccinated. And I think that's why this has needed to be called out. Um, is saying, you know, at this point, we don't feel the choice not to be vaccinated is a reasonable one for someone delivering health care. And this is not new. We have other vaccine mandates in healthcare, other things that you need to show in terms of your personal medical history to ensure that you're safe for delivering patient care. So this, you know, right now, I think it's front and centre because COVID is something that's impacting everyone. But this approach in healthcare is not new, and we've done it before with other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't want to be the person who brings a family member or a loved one into a hospital and and you realize that this person needs specific and specialized care and the specific and the specialized care is not available because the doctor has been removed from the roster because the doctor was not vaccinated. How do you how do you how do you uh, how do you come to grips with that? I know what you're saying, but is there a middle ground? Has anybody thought about finding a middle ground to this one? Well, I think it's difficult because there isn't really a great middle ground. You know, we, we know that the vaccine is the most effective in terms of limiting spread and keeping people 
safe. We know that things like rapid testing aren't a replacement for the vaccine. So, you know, initially, I think that was one of the things people were considering. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have COVID the next day or three days from now. It's also very expensive and burdensome and difficult to roll out. Um, you know, I think people should not be afraid that their specialist medical care is going to be dramatically impacted by vaccine mandates. In most provinces, about 99% of physicians are immunized. So this is a, in, in terms of physicians, this is extremely small numbers of people who have chosen not to be vaccinated. So I, I really don't think we're anticipating any major impacts in terms of, you know, a specialist in a certain area, meaning that type of care is no longer available for people. Um, so I, I don't want the public to have that fear. Um, is it going to have some impact in terms of hospital staffing? Absolutely. But again, I think it's really just showing that we don't have the depth in our system that we should have had. No, we don't. We have, and we've been talking, you know, at the CMA for a long time about the importance of human health resource planning, ensuring adequate numbers of physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals in this country are trained, and that we actually have a plan so that we have the workforce we need to deliver healthcare. And right now, there no such plan exists. And and I think what we're seeing is just showing this really long-standing stress on the system. Yeah, it really has exposed the cracks and significant cracks in our system when we know that cancer and heart patients and others as well who require immediate, specialized, and, and very direct health care are not getting it, and not getting it not only because of COVID, but because of a system that is creaking at the edges. Dr. Smart, I have a few more questions for you. Would you be okay to stay with us a few minutes longer? Absolutely. Okay. So, Dr. Smart, it looks like the, uh, the mandates, the uh, hospital uh, vaccine mandates, are working in the United States, and you say compliance in this country, in most provinces, in the, is in the 99% range. What, what, what is, why are some doctors refusing? Well, I think, you know, unfortunately, we, we have some doctors that are actively spreading misinformation, and, and that's been an issue, and each province has had a handful of physicians that have fallen into that, which has been unfortunate, and those people are being held to account by the regulatory colleges in those provinces uh, as it's considered unprofessional, of course, to be spreading misinformation. This is, again, a very small handful of of people. Um, So that's been, I think, an unfortunate thing to have happened. But I think it's not surprising, you know, when you think there's over 80,000 physicians in the country, you're always going to have a handful of people who have an alternative perspective on something. and, and, And that's one of the reasons we need things like vaccine mandates to ensure safety is, is to protect against that small minority that are, are not going to fall or not believe the, the, the actual facts and unfortunately have been taken in by some of the misinformation that's out there. Okay, let me come back to the other point, and I know this is important to the CMA, and it's important to all of us. And you spoke about it several times during our interview today, and we had an interview specifically about this, I think two weeks ago, you and I. The need for this healthcare system to be more effective, more efficient, uh, more streamlined, if you will. Please remind us of what the needs are. What has this COVID pandemic exposed that needs most and immediate attention as far as healthcare delivery in this country is concerned? Well, one of the biggest issues we're facing is absolutely in the area of human health resources. And when you compare Canada to other high income countries, 
we have some of the lowest numbers of physicians, nurses, and hospital beds of other comparable countries. So we are working always sort of already in a deficit of healthcare professionals. So that is one of the reasons that we have access issues. And then I think when you think of the size of our country and the number of people that live in different rural and remote areas, and then already you have less healthcare professionals and you're spreading them out uh, over such a vast geography, you can see why you have areas that become very vulnerable in terms of having enough staff. So that's a big issue. The other piece, you know, is adequate funding. We've seen the, the Canada health transfer sort of plateau over years and it's set to start to decline if there's not more federal investment in healthcare. And this is in a backdrop of an aging population that healthcare is more expensive to deliver to. So when you combine those two things, you know, lower number of dollars of funding and not of people, no plan, uh, not increasing health resources, what you start getting is a system that's falling behind in terms of health delivery. And that's what we are learning about Canada. We actually, in the recent um, Commonwealth Fund showed we were second last for all high-income countries in terms of the quality of our health care delivery. Wow. That's uh, deeply concerning. Is it also still true that doctors are aging more quickly on average and retiring more quickly than the general population in this country? Well, that's a good question. I think actually doctors tend to work longer than most people. You see a lot of of older physicians still carrying on in practice because I think for a lot of physicians, medicine is their passion and and caring for patients is a huge part of their identity. So many physicians keep practicing medicine on on some level, even into what would be the traditional retirement years. Um, So I, I, I think there's, you know, we see a huge age range of physicians. Um, But I think what's not happening is a clear plan about how many doctors do we need and are our universities training enough physicians? And then is there enough postgraduate training physicians for the people coming out of medical school to then train them to be able to practice medicine and that's where we're falling short. I think it's quite clear we're not training enough people. We're also falling behind with spots in postgraduate training, which is that residency level of training where you become specialized in what your area of practice is going to be, you know, whether it be family medicine or, or a different area of, of specialty practice. So when those numbers aren't really lining up to the need, um, then what you get is a real problem recruiting and retaining doctors and then rural areas that are chronically understaffed you know recruitment and retention is really challenging when you're speaking to a new physician who's maybe considering that but there's no plan to make sure that they have coverage if they need to have maternity leave or they want to take a vacation you can appreciate that's not a really attractive setup for somebody if they're really worried that they're going to never be able to have any time for themselves or their family and that's impacting our ability to keep doctors in some of the more rural parts of this country yeah makes sense Okay, I want to uh, speak to two guests who have been on this program on the border closure issue with me on several occasions over the last year. They are the mayors of Niagara Falls, Ontario, and uh, Niagara Falls, New York. Mayor Jim Diodati of Niagara Falls, Ontario. Mayor, how are you, sir? I'm well. Thanks for having me on the show today, Roy. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Mayor Restaino, good to have you back. Good to be here, Roy. Hello to you. Hello to Mayor Jim. Hello, Mayor Restaino. Nice to hear your voice. So, Mayor Restaino, how are you feeling now that the border is going to be open on November the 8th, and what's it mean to your community? Well, it's great news, obviously. You know that we've been talking about this for quite some several months. Um, 
And I think in the run-up to this conversation with um, Mayor Diodati and I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Right now, there are some wrinkles that still need to be ironed out. I hope that they can get ironed out rather rapidly. Um, uh, I know myself, and I'm, I'm sure Mayor Diodati joins me, the uh, passage across the border, the land border, should be very easy. If you're vaccinated, fully vaccinated, thank you, have a good day. More than that just seems to me to be crazy. That being said, can't wait to have we have the holiday season coming up, so we know that it will provide additional um, opportunities uh, for uh, family, friends, tourists to come in and enjoy um, our retailers, our restaurants. So we're excited about it. Mayor Diodati, what is the cost being to Niagara Falls, to the border being closed? And how important has it proven to be for the border to be open to Americans to come back in the last, well, it's been a number of weeks now. It's been long, longer than a number of weeks since Canada opened the border to Americans. Well, it's been devastating. You know, a lot of people don't understand. In a border town, we see it, myself and Robert see this as one big city divided by a border. And we've got family, friends, favorite places to eat, to shop at, absolutely divided and for almost two years inaccessible. And if you can imagine wherever anyone, any of your listeners are living right now, half your city being cut off to you for the next two years. It's been very frustrating. It's been very devastating. And in terms of tourism, 50% of our revenue comes from American visitation. So even with Ontario staycations, it does not make up for what we lost. And here in Niagara Falls, 40,000 people count on tourism to put food on the table. And, and I'll tell you, this extra layer of testing for fully vaccinated people, it's unnecessary. It's an albatross around tourism's neck. And, and I know firsthand, because I've spoken with so many people that said, you know, for, and, and, and you know, Roy, approximately half the population of North America is within a day's drive of Niagara Falls. So most people come here by car, they drive here, and they plan out their trip and they do their budget. And when you tell them it could be another $1,000, to cross the border, they just cross us off the list. They said that's too expensive. And if they're fully vaccinated, they don't understand. It's counterintuitive. Why are you making us get tested? If the vaccines work, and the only excuse we hear is, well, you can still carry it. Well, if you're carrying it to fellow vaccinated people, we're just frustrated because we've been hammered for the last two years. We're trying to recover. And there's so many layers of bureaucracy. And, and we're just we're struggling to understand. And as Mayor Ristano calls them wrinkles that need to be ironed out. And I'm hoping we're going to get leadership from our federal ministers to say, come on. I mean, we've got 87% of Canadians have one shot. 82% have two shots. Our numbers are extremely low. Let's come up with some common sense solutions so that we can be respectful of the situation, but not over encumber the tourism industry. Mayor Diodati, when you mention this, when you raise this with federal officials, and I agree with you 100% that this additional layer, and they talk about being concerned that you may be in a part of the United States where vaccination rates are low, so you could get infected and you have to test negative before you come home. It sounds like it's, it's, it just sounds like a, a not fully developed thought through plan. It's like somebody jumped from A to, to Z or Z in Mayor Estano's case, without any intermediate stops. When do you talk to them? What do they say to you about this? 
you know, they always say, well, and I know what it is. Their concern is they don't want to be the one if someone gets infected is always kind of the attitude. And I said, well, you know, you can drive your car and you could hit someone. We don't ban cars. There's got to be a, a reasonable semblance of precaution. But yeah. then you go to the other point where the downside is is huge. And in this case, tourism's not coming back. Families are saying this is just an encumbrance. It's too expensive. And it's also another layer. And, and myself, this past summer, Roy, I went to Boston. I went to Cape Cod to watch my nephew who plays ball for the University of Alabama. He was playing in the summer league and we went down and I experienced firsthand what yet the hoops you need to jump through. Cause I was traveling with my father and an older cousin. And I got to tell you something, you got to be really organized, really prepared and really want to go bad because we're trying to attract people here. And in this case, it detracts them from coming here. So we're frustrated. I mean, we're grateful. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful that I can again travel. Now we're asking our Canadian government, be reasonable with what your expectations are at the border. Maris, Dana, what's the vaccination rate in uh, in Western New York, in your part of Western New York? In our part of Western New York, the uh, rate of those who are fully vaccinated is just under 60%. Um, those with one vaccine, um, I think, is topping out at just close to 70 So we, But over here, we've been incentivizing things like a hockey, professional hockey and professional uh, football games. You can't go unless you're vaccinated. And so, um, again, as Mayor Diodati and I have said over and over again, um, if that's the drill, if the drill is to incentivize vaccines, then it's crazy to put all of these other obstacles in the way. You know, Mayor Diodati hit all the points with family and friends and really the fact that this is one city um, between Niagara Falls, New York, and Niagara Falls, Ontario, and, you know, the, the, the tourism market is getting much more competitive. And every single time, we've lost now two seasons. Every single time yeah. I put some other silly restriction in place, as the mayor said, they just check us off the list. You know, it's interesting you say that because I live very close to, uh, to the border. And uh, I know your two communities very well. I spend a lot of time in, in both of them, and I like them both. And my thinking was, when I heard that the border was going to open on November the 8th, I thought, well, it's great. Head on over for, you know, for lunch or dinner and, and just reacquaint myself with the, with the folks in, in the region. And then I heard, oh, but then you have to be vaccinated. Well, hold on a second. If I leave in the afternoon, I want to go for dinner. Where do I go for a test at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night? Or do I go before dinner? And now how do I get the results? When do I get the results? It really throws an obstacle. Like it's saying we're going to open the border, but we're not going to open the border. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the truth of it. The, the, the borders open. And, and as, the, as Mayor Diodati said, you know, we're very grateful that the, the, the thought process is to, to, to reopen. But now I think we have to get more practical. And I, and I agree with you, Roy, that it's almost like this wasn't, it's one thing to announce, but let's have all the plans in place to make sure that we're not making this even more of a burden. Because then, obviously, as you're doing your calculus while you're traveling, as, as Mayor Diodati said, you're trying to make sure if you're not well organized, if you don't have it all figured out, you're going to get frustrated and just turn around. Yeah. Mayor Diodati, uh, how concerned are you about this regulation? I know it's, it's for Americans coming in or Canadians coming back home. But how concerned are you about the regulations that have been in place and the ones that are in place now and how they may affect your community heading toward what no doubt is one of the busiest seasons of the year for any uh, any community, and that's Christmas time. 
Well, it's, you know, anecdotally, we've already had the border open to Americans, and we have not had a resurgence of visitation. And when we were kids, when I was growing up, my brothers and my sister and I, we'd always count license plates and see from which states and which provinces and how far away. And if you'd seen Alaska one or New Mexico or wherever, well, that game you don't play anymore. All you see is a handful of New York plates. And I mean a handful, nothing anywhere near what it used to be because they're opting not to come. And people are going to say, well, just go to the Finger Lakes. Even with the advantage of the exchange rate, they're still not coming it, because it's frustrating. And especially if people say I'm fully vaccinated, why are you doing this? And I can tell you, talking to Canadians who are itching to get to their favorite hotspots for shopping or visiting, or a lot of us like myself are big Buffalo Bills fans, we're dying to get to a game. A lot of us are season ticket holders. But people have said, it's so coming back, I'm going to have to get tested, and I might have to stay overnight waiting for test results. And I know of people whose test results were delayed for whatever reason, and they wouldn't let them back into the border. So it's a very, very frustrating, unpredictable, uh, unhealthy way of opening the border. I think we can be so much more efficient, eliminate the red tape. Let's come up with a streamlined process that's respectful of everybody's health, but also respectful of everybody's time. And I think right now, the current situation, it's a little more of a reaction than a proaction. We need to be planned out. We know the dates. We know what's required. Why can't we just have a nice business approach to a critical path on how people can expeditiously cross that border? And and our goal is always to make it smooth and efficient. And it seems we're doing the exact opposite right now. So I can only say this, and I won't expect you to comment on what I'm going to say. But I've said forever, you can't outthink those who aren't thinking. <laughs> I'll just laugh. <laughs> Dr. Bjorn Lomborg is the founder of the Copenhagen Consensus Center think tank with Nobel laureates on staff. He's the former director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institute, and he was named by Time magazine as one of the world's 100 most influential people. He's the author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. That'll be out in paperback next week, I believe. Uh, Dr. Lomborg, also syndicated international columnist, and he's back with us on The Roy Green Show. Good to have you back with us, Bjorn. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Roy. It's great to be back. Yeah. Uh, let, let's start with this. Um, 20 to 30 to 2050, generally are the targets governments tell us, for achieving lower or net zero carbon emissions. Um, you wrote in a column recently that, quote, such targets rarely achieve anything, end quote. And then I went back and looked at some notes of previous conversations we've had, and you spoke about Biden and Trudeau's commitment to reach 40 to 45 percent of 2005 emissions by 2030. So the question is, let's put the two together. The first part uh, of my question and part two is, what will all this accomplish and at what cost? And then I suppose I really should start with, is it doable? Well, Roy, everything is doable if you're willing to pay a sufficient amount of resources. Uh, and, and that's, of course, where the real hitch lies. Uh, a lot of countries are now promising uh, to cut uh, emissions by, say, half uh, by 2030 and cut them totally by 2050. Yet most of this is simply wishful thinking. Just to give you a sense of proportion, uh, a new Nature paper a couple of months ago uh, showed that Biden's promise 
or actually they couldn't quite make the model get to Biden's net zero. They could get to 95% reduction in 2050. That would cost a phenomenal 11.9% of U.S. GDP every year by 2050. That's the equivalent of $4.4 trillion every year or a cost for each American of more than $11,000 every year. Of course, Americans are not actually going to vote for this. Remember, the, uh, there's a majority in the U.S. that would vote against $24 in cost, let alone $11,000. Yeah, you wrote in a, in a column last week, uh, maybe 10, 10 or so days ago, either all electricity will go green by 2030 or 2035 because it's cheaper than the alternative, or more likely such a policy will simply drive up electricity prices to levels voters reject. Um, which one do you think is going to happen? <laughs> well, it's very clear that politicians are arguing when they're faced with saying, this is going to be phenomenally expensive. They will tell you, oh, you know, innovation will fix all that. And look, it may actually happen. Innovation is what has helped us and fixed most problems for humanity in the past. Of course, politicians are investing way too little in innovations, but maybe innovations will come around. But more likely, politicians will find that just like in the rest of history, you can't actually just rip out the engine of economic growth for the last couple hundred years with no cost. It will be phenomenally costly, and voters will very likely put a stop to this before 2030 and certainly before 2050, and that they will have to you know, pay in the order of $11,000 per person per year. So we have a story today in Canada that the International Energy Agency is predicting interest in Canadian oil will fall before the end of the decade when it uh, will begin to recede. Are you on board or do you challenge the IEC on that prediction? The Canadian oil producing uh, oil producers certainly are challenging the IEC on that. Well, it it is one of those things that you say we're going to use less and less oil, we're going to use less and less coal and other fossil fuels. Uh, but what uh, most people forget is economics actually means that that will drive down the price. So the International Energy Agency, uh, in their net zero report, estimate that if you try to go to net zero, it basically means oil will become as cheap as $25 per barrel. Uh, and I would suggest that it seems unlikely that not a lot of people in a lot of countries are going to snap up oil at that price. So while it may be true for Canadian oil, because as I understand, Canadian oil is very expensive to produce, it's certainly not going in general to make it impossible that people will be using oil and coal and other fossil fuels. Actually, what happens is when you start doing green policies, you simply make fossil fuels cheaper for everyone else. This, of course, again underlines why we're not going to solve this problem by making everyone agree to incredibly hard and debilitating policies. We're going to solve this problem through innovation. Well, let's talk about that. I, I remember our conversation immediately prior to the 2015 COP conference in Paris and our conversation immediately after that conference, and you spoke about trillions of dollars achieving essentially nothing. And you do want to have a healthy planet, and you do believe and you do support that humans are responsible for raising the uh, the, the temperatures, the AGW. 
So what's the formula that we should be engaging in and likely will not, unless we're both going to be terribly surprised, after COP26? So on the sidelines of Paris, uh, President Obama and and, uh, uh, many other world leaders met to actually promise to drive up investment in innovation. Uh, They promised to double that investment. Of course, they haven't actually followed through on that. We've seen a slight increase, but nowhere near doubling. And a doubling is not enough. Remember, we spend very little globally on innovation. We spend an enormous amount of resources on inefficient technologies that feel green, but don't actually or can't actually be scaled. So what we really need is to get much, much more innovation. Fundamentally, the Paris Agreement and what people are trying to talk about in uh, Glasgow is a way of spending trillions of dollars and achieving fairly small reductions in temperature. That's because you get rich countries like Canada and others uh, committing to cutting some pretty painful uh, uh, emissions at very high cost, but globally it'll have very, very little impact. What you need is to get cheap green energies that are so cheap the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans that are going to produce the vast amount of emissions in the 21st century will want to use them. If we could make green energy cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone would switch. It wouldn't be rocket science. You know, it's just like all other innovations. If you come up with the smart solution, you can get everyone to switch. But if you don't, it will always be uphill. It'll always be these meetings where everybody tries to twist each other's arms. You're going to get lots of beautiful promises, but you're going to get very, very little actual reduction in global emissions, even in 10, 20, 30 years from now. And you wrote a few days ago, and you've said this before, if uh, the clean energy plans that are being touted by governments and will be touted after COP26, if they, in fact, do take place, and if they, in fact, prove to be uh, doable on schedule. No date is required. It will just happen. So you don't have to have a deadline. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's of course, what's so absurd when, when, for instance, Boris Johnson is promising, oh, we'll get all this green energy because it's going to be cheaper. Well, if it's going to be cheaper, you don't need to promise it. It's just going to happen. But the reality, of course, is there's a very good chance. Most people would believe you know, almost a 100% chance that it won't happen because it's not cheap. That's why you need investment in green energy. Just to give a sense of proportion, right now the world spends about $15, $20 billion on green innovation. We spend 10 times that amount on investment in green energy, basically inefficient subsidies for for, existing solar and wind. That's the wrong way around to spend 10 times as much on the stuff that won't solve the problem, but 10 times less on the stuff that actually will fix the problem. We have been told many times that climate change is an existential threat. Wildfires, hurricanes, typhoons, earthquakes attributed to global warming. Uh, We've also been told it's the most significant health challenge of our time. Lauren, if we put those, um, those headlines together, climate change and existential threat, wildfires, hurricanes, typhoons, earthquakes, are being caused by global warming, and it's the most significant health challenge of our time. If we put those headlines together with the title of your book, False Alarm, walk us through that, please. Uh, Put the two together for us. Yes. So you definitely hear a lot of these alarms. 
And when you look at the media picture, it is true that you think you see more and more hurricanes, more and more damage. And of course, it feels that way because now you have CNN all the time running, every time showing you each and every catastrophe around the world. But if you actually look at the data, we do have this data back from 100 years ago from the International Disaster Database. We know how many people were actually harmed in weather-related disasters. It turns out that 100 years ago, about half a million people died on average from weather-related disasters. Last decade, that number was down to about 18,000. In 2021, we believe it'll end up around 5,000 people. We've seen a reduction in human death from weather-related disasters of more than 99%. I remember we've quadrupled the global population at the same time. The reason being that we are a technologically advanced species. We actually know how to deal with issues. And that's why everything we do, because we become more resilient, we are pulled out of poverty, that makes us much less likely to succumb to climate-related disasters. So while you hear a lot about these things, we're actually seeing people being much, much better off. And this is true in a wide range of areas. So while climate change definitely is a problem, remember, the UN tells us if we did nothing about this, so the UN Climate Panel, if we did nothing about climate change for the next 80 years, by 2100, temperatures would have risen 3.6 degrees. But what they tell us, we would see a damage equivalent of 2.6% of global GDP by then. Paying 12% of GDP to avoid part of that damage is a really bad deal. That's so how expensive? Point there. Yeah, how expensive do you project energy costs for the average person to become if we follow along this path? It, it's, it's very hard to tell because what will happen, and we're seeing that, for instance, in Germany, is that you will increasingly switch over the cost of the energy to the state itself. So Germany has for a very long time, and, and hats off to them, been very honest about the incredible cost that they've seen, which is why Germany has one of the world's two highest cost of electricity in the world. Uh, They compete with Denmark every year, I'm sorry to say. Uh, So the reality is it used to be incredibly expensive. That's obviously politically very, very hard and difficult. So now they're increasingly talking about switching it over to the state. So possibly electricity won't be so costly because the state will subsidize it. But of course, you still have to pay through your taxes. So one way or another, you're going to end up paying a lot. That's what the climate models actually show. What will this cost on average? And that was what I mentioned before. A new nature study shows that if Biden gets his way, it will cost, if they do this in the smartest possible way, it'll cost 12% of U.S. GDP. That's a lot of resources. That's more than Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security cost today. They cost about 11.6% of U.S. GDP. So we're talking about an immense cost. Yeah. In the time we have left, let me come back to this international energy agency predicting interest in Canadian oil will fall before the end of the decade, and uh, they're saying it's going to be too expensive for the world anyway. What do you say Canada should be doing with our natural resources, namely oil and natural gas, at this point? What would you recommend? I, I, I'm sorry, I probably don't have a good suggestion to this because I don't know the circumstances. But very clearly, what we need to do 
is to make sure that we don't end up pushing all of our production, for instance, back to China and India, where they'll probably end up meaning more emissions rather than having it produced, for instance, in Canada. You have to be very careful to just say, oh, let's stop emitting here, but in reality, just push most of our emissions invisibly through trade to China and India. So you should definitely think about using your resources. Maybe you shouldn't use all of them. Climate change is a problem, so we should be smart. But please don't just feel good by pushing it offshore and basically feel great, but not actually cutting your carbon emissions. Yeah, and in the 45 seconds we have left, your sustaining message has been, in the years that I've spoken with you, is that the world's poor battle with much greater challenges, starvation, poverty, dying from easily curable diseases and lack of education. That's where the focus should be, and that's where the money could go and help the world, yes? And of course, yes, and of course, that's also what India and China and Africa want. They are not interested in cutting their carbon emissions, first and foremost. And remember, the Paris Agreement will increase the number of poor people by 11 million. But if we start uh, doubling down in Glasgow, we could easily end up seeing another 80 million more people in poverty by 2030. That's a real cost. Yeah. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, the new book, or at least it's in paperback next week, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Now let's continue, and let's stay with this issue of uh, energy, Canadian energy. And uh, specifically, we're going to be joined now by Stephen Buffalo, President and CEO of the Indian Resource Council, First Nations Engaged, Involved in Exploration and... Um, and the uh, production and and sale of oil and natural gas. So tell us, please, remind everybody, and we have new listeners all the time, remind us of what it is the IRC does. What do you do? Okay, we're uh, the Indian Resource Council of Canada is a national organization uh, that advocates on behalf of uh, First Nations that have oil and gas production. And it's, it's you know, our mandate is starting to swell a little bit to, to pipelines and just really basically natural resource development. And, and uh, you know, we've been around since the 80s and uh, working with the federal government, the provinces to, to really uh, take advantage of the opportunities that were in the ground. And uh, let me tell you, Roy, uh, our First Nations definitely needed this resource. Uh, our, our communities in, under the Indian Resource Council have benefited. Uh, if the listeners don't understand what the communities are stuck being under the Indian Act, you know, creating your own self your own source revenue is a key motive to promote your own programs and, and deal with some of your own community initiatives. And, you know, so oil and gas is uh, is a big component to, to our communities here out west and that have the opportunity to produce the hydrocarbons, yes. You know, there's a perception among many Canadians because of the messaging they've received that all First Nations, everyone who's Indigenous in this country, uh, has little use for oil and uh, and or natural gas <laughs> yeah you know it, 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 it's always a discussion and it's always a debate and now everyone with twitter and facebook they they have an opinion and that's okay you know uh, at the end of the day yes we definitely uh utilize oil and gas you know uh, uh and and to be honest you know uh it's about efficiency you know i was in the vancouver harbor and uh in the musqueam nation area and, and I saw the local fishermen coming in. Let me tell you, they weren't paddling. You know, they had a high-powered motors pushing that boat in. 
you know, a lot of our community members that still do trapping, nine times out of ten, it's 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 on a nice snow machine or a nice uh, ATV, all-terrain vehicle that uh, you know, gas-powered. And and you know, again, it's it's just about efficiency, um, and and it's it's the advancement. Uh, and and I know uh, people, uh, uh, you know, some of the advocates. You know, it's a little hypocritical, you know, what what they they talk about and what they want to stop. But, you know, they enjoy heating their home. They enjoy getting on that bus, that diesel-powered bus to go protest something. Um, It's it's very hypocritical, and and, uh, it's simply not true. You know, a lot of First Nations are are very active in this this resource. It it employs a whole ton of people, and... and, uh, you know, it's 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 about our nations really getting off that dependency of the the federal transfer, <laughs> the federal uh, well, yeah. in, uh, in Indian Act uh, funding that we we unfortunately still receive. Stephen, tell us a little bit, please, about the importance of oil and natural gas development, economic importance, and community importance to First Nations. Well, you know, if I can just go back a little bit, you know, we had to go through this exercise with the Supreme Court, and it <laughs> it identified some some rights and title, and and now you know you fast forward a little bit forward, and you know, and then now job opportunities were coming kind of at a, a lower level in, in in this in this natural resource sector, and and our people that have the hydrocarbons, oil and gas in the ground, you know, we're slowly learning the business. We're slowly understanding what the capabilities were, and and have done really smart things with with the resources that they do receive, and and it, it, it's been kind of a positive spinoff, you know. And, and now, now you know we have meaningful partnerships, we have meaningful ownership, you know. Here in Alberta, we have the Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, which was started by our our premier and, and uh, our minister of Indigenous relations, Rick Wilson. So Jason Kenny, Rick Wilson, you know, gave, gave an opportunity to provide. Uh, a provincial loan guarantee for a First Nation to participate in some sort of natural resource infrastructure opportunity that is happening in the traditional territories. So that's where we've gone through the history till now. And, and uh, you know, with, with what, what has happened in our election and everything, we don't want to see status quo. You know, we want to keep going. And it's in this natural resource sector, be it oil sands, be it natural conventional oil and gas, there's still tons of opportunity and, you know, there's still a pipeline to it where uh, first nations are still trying to uh, get a hand on the steering wheel there. So it's, it's a big opportunity and it's a definite game changer. Like, sorry, is it a really significantly contentious issue though, among first nations, the, the exploration development of natural gas and, uh, and oil, is it a contentious issue that separates first nations as well? Yes, there's still kind of a, a divide a little bit, but but at the end of the day, you know, when we ask the federal government for an increase in our in our annual agreement, it, it doesn't happen. So we have to find our own ways to do it. And and you know, we, we uh, some of our people are still very connected. In, in uh, you know, I, if the listeners understand, if there's any spirituality, some of the people that are listening may have. You know, we're we're connected in in uh, to, to the earth, and and we listen. And then uh, some of the ceremonies and the things that we do, we, we, we pray for Mother Earth. And, and, of course, you know, industry has made that transition, too, to amplify 
the the uh, the reclamation work now that's happening uh, that's in our sector. And, and there's a ton of it that needs to be done. I bet you this industry that will be the leading industry in Alberta, well, one of for the next at least 30 years here in Alberta. Uh, reclamation work is 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 paramount and, and has come to the forefront. And that's the balance. You know, First Nations understand that the earth has some bounty and it's providing for us and it's providing for everybody. And, and uh, uh, there's environmental disruption. Absolutely. There's environmental disruption when you're drilling, when you're doing oil sands, when you're mining for cobalt, when you're mining for lithium, there's environmental disruption. But, you know, the, the work in the end with, with the reclamation work, that's, that's really what we, uh, we're, we're looking at. And I think we're getting better at it. We're getting uh, more concentrated and it's coming to the forefront. So as, as, as the needs of the world and demand and energy keeps increasing, we still have to play our part, and right now, more so than ever, with with environmental social governance, the ESG industry is reaching out to First Nations, creating these partnerships, and, and I think you know things will get better. You know, when when First Nations do well, the local community does well. When the local community does well, the province does well, and then when the province does well, our country does well. So you know, <laughs> if if we can just remove that. Uh, some of the stigmas and, and, and some of the barriers. I, I think we'll go a long way as long as we're continuing to, to produce energy in all forms. Okay, just so one more question for you. Do, yeah. do you find, do you think, or do you find that governments, federal, provincial governments, so maybe we should start with the federal government, do you think, do you find that they marginalize the um, Indian Resource Council, marginalize what you're doing? Try to push you aside and make you seem to be not as significant as you are, as far as a player is concerned. Um, it, it, it's a really tough question, but I, in the honest opinion, yes, I think they do. You know, uh, like we're we're federally funded, and and uh, and we advocate for the nations that produce oil and gas to, in 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 that regard, and and uh, we we uh, we've been seeing the same level of funding for the last seventeen years. <laughs> so you know, but but ultimately we. Uh, with with this just transition, you know, obviously our mandate has to change. You know, we got to find things to do greener. We have to, you know, and then right now with with the province, we we negotiated a hundred million dollars in in site reclamation uh, program here in, in in Alberta. So on First Nation lands, we identified uh, thirty six hundred wells that need to be reclaimed, and the province through this big program with the federal government, we, we were able to to get that going and get a lot of our young people working. And, and more importantly, reclaim the land. So, you know, it's, it's like we, we would, I don't think the First Nations of Alberta would have got that if, okay. if we weren't banging on Jason Kenney's door, you know, and say, hey, come on, we're falling through the cracks through your program here. We're not, our contractors aren't getting any work. And, and uh, he fortunately came through and then uh, supported our the initiative. So, okay. You know what? But but on on the big political front, you know, uh, again, it, it, things have to change because you know our prime minister wants to change. <laughs> well, our prime minister wants many things. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, 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 it's 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 really hard. Yeah. But in the same sense, though, you know, uh, you look at the price of the commodities today, and and you know, I That's I know right. now that we have these partnerships. Now that we're equity owners in some of these companies and initiatives. 
you know, it's going to help First Nations. And, and again, you know, if there's a way we can get off of the dependency of the Indian Act and that federal funding, funding I, I think we'll go a long way. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.